0: let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD. Specifically, Slackware 14.2. Of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. Slackware 15.0 is out. I know I said that last week, but I'm saying it again because I was told on Mastodon by Hacker Defo that I was actually pretty confusing about sort of what I was talking about when I I was saying, here's how you can get Slackware. And so I want to set that record a little bit clearer now. By explaining very explicitly your options were you to attempt to try Slackware today. So, if you go to slackware.com, in the left-hand column, there is a link called Git Slack. That is the download link, or I should say, that gets you on the download track. So I'm going to click Git Slack, and now I'm taken to a subsection of the Slackware site called slackware.com slash get slack this page introduces you to the concept of mirrors which are as the name implies sort of mirror versions of of servers that host a specific set of files it tells you on this page to download the complete slackware distribution from one of our mirrors you can click on the word mirrors to be taken to the mirror site which is mirrors.slackware.com okay Almost there. Now that we're here, you can look on, again, in a a different left column. This this has changed because you're on a different site now. And look for the link, the second one from the top, called Slackware ISO images. Click on that link, and you're taken to a mirror. This is good. This this has the files that you need. So on this mirror, you see a list of all the Slackware ISO images all the Slackware editions that this mirror happens to hold. This one goes back to 12.0. Not interested in that. 15.0 is what we're looking for. There are two editions of Slackware. There's Slackware, and there's Slackware 64. So assuming you want the 64-bit edition, assuming your computer can run a 64-bit operating system, that's the one that you would choose. So I'm going to go into the Slackware 64-15.0 folder, and in that folder... There is a slackware64-15.0-install-dvd.iso. It is 3.5 gigabytes. That's the file that you would download for this task. Downloading that file gets you essentially a virtual DVD. It's a big file on your computer. I've been told recently by some people that on, I believe it's either Windows 10 or... 11 that, that it automatically tries to sort of mount that that virtual DVD as if though it was a real DVD and and it, it appears that it it actually doesn't even download the data initially it sort of downloads a file list or something. I'm not really sure I wasn't there. I've just been told it can be rather confusing. Um, so I think probably what I would do is I would right click on that ISO file and select Save link as, and that kind of usually gets your computer, get your browser, to just treat it as a binary blob and just download that or an archive, download that, save it to your computer, and with no further interaction, which is generally what you want. I have not had that problem myself, so I'm just kind of reporting what I've heard. Once you have the ISO file, you can do two things, and this is where I was really, really unclear in the previous episode. You can either burn that ISO... Actually, you can do three things. You can. You can burn that ISO to a physical disc. That's what I chose to do, because, frankly, if I do anything else, I lose track of it. But if it's a physical disc, I can put it in a case on my bookshelf, and it's always there when I need it. And I always find myself needing it for something. So that's what I do. Next release, I probably won't do that, because I won't have any more discs left. Maybe I'll have a thumb drive that is dedicated to the task of being the Slackware th- th- thumb drive. Anyway, you can burn it to a disk using K3B or Brasero or whatever disk-burning software you use. You can also, instead, byte-for-byte copy that ISO file to a thumb drive. Now, you have to do this in a very special and specific way. You cannot just drag the ISO file to a thumb drive. That will not work. I mean, it will it will do something, but it is not the thing that you want to do. You need to create a bootable thumb drive. Even if you have tried, and Black Kernel was talking to me on Mastodon about this, even if you've tried to do this with Slackware64-CURRENT within the last couple of months, try this anyway. Try this thing instead. DDIF equals the path to your ISO... OF equals the path to your thumb drive, BS equals 2M, maybe, and then, uh, uh, what is it, status equals progress. That copies, and you have to do that as root, that writes out, bit for bit, the contents of that ISO onto your thumb drive. And now that thumb drive is bootable. You could take that thumb drive out of your computer, put it into another computer, or, or reboot your current computer, and boot off of that thumb drive. You'll get a grub menu, and you can choose which kernel to boot, and, and then you're in the Slackware installer, as if, though, it was booting off of a DVD. I know this because I've tested it myself. Reinstalled Slackware 15.0 to my NVMe hard drive from a thumb drive, and it worked exactly as one would expect. You can do that. It's very easy. Now, so that, that's the end. That, that's all I had to say, really. For, for maximum clarity, that's it. We're done, except we're never done. What I will also say here is that the Slackware installer is quite flexible. It's really a a small little script, and it doesn't care so much about the specifics. So there are lots of variations here that you could use if you had to, and that's kind of what I was talking about in the previous episode. You can get a little boot image, the, the USB boot image, from the pxe-and-usb-installers directory in the source tree of Slackware. You could get that and make yourself a little boot image that's basically just the bare minimum required to boot a, a Linux system plus the install script. Now, it's only about 60 megabytes, I think, is what we said last time. Maybe smaller, I don't know. I don't remember. But I guess I could look real quick. I'm going to go here to um, ftp.osuosl.org slash pub slash slackware slash slackware64 dash... Well, that's 14.2, so I could go 15.0 instead. Here's USB and PXE installers, USBboot.img. Oh, 60 megabytes. Yes, I was correct. And then there's a USB image to disk.sh, 16 kilobytes. You could use that to just boot your computer, and then through you you step through the setup process, and eventually it asks you, hey, where do you want me to get packages from? And then you can point that to somewhere on the internet, or you could point it to a hard drive if you've downloaded all the packages for Slackware onto a hard drive, or if you've downloaded the ISO image and then um, d de- like mounted it and took all the packages out and put it somewhere. So th- there's a lot of flexibility with that. It's an advanced process, and it's not something you probably need to know if you don't need to know, but if you're really struggling to get something installed for some reason, that's another option. And then, of course, the the other option that, for whatever reason, is highlighted on Slackware.com is Live Slack. And for that, you can just go to... Well, like I say, it's highlighted on Slackware.com. Quite, it's it's kind of hard to miss if you read the release notes. Which, again, is is why I was so surprised that they didn't mention that the USB... Or that, that, ISO is a, um, hybrid ISO is what the, the term is, I think. I saw a hacker defo use that. Um, so it's download.liveslack.org. And that's live slack without a C. So live S-L-A-K dot org. Download.liveslack.org would bring you to the live edition of Slackware designed by Alien Bob. And then you can boot off of that thumb drive. And once again, it's got an installer and you can point it at the packages that you want to install. And you can go through that that process. That's it. That's that's the process of installing Slackware in all the different ways that I can personally think of off the top of my head right now. There are yet other ways. If you go to, for instance, ZenWalk Linux, you could get ZenWalk and download ZenWalk, which is a, a, a smaller sort of edition of Slackware. You could install that and then switch over your mirrors to Slackware later and, and adjust. Uh, you could do the same approximate process with, I think it's Salix, Salix OS. It's based on Slackware. It doesn't look like they've updated to me yet to 15.0. So that isn't really an option yet, but presumably they will eventually. And the final, honestly, last one that I can think of, the final way to do it, is to use Slack PKG. If, if you're running 14.2 already, not everyone knows that you can do this and have been able to do it with Slackware for ages. You can just upgrade your entire distribution from a running distribution. You do a Slack PKG update, Slack PKG install dash new, and then Slack PKG space upgrade dash all, Slack PKG space clean dash system. And I have done it before. Actually, I don't know that I've done it from a release to a release. I have definitely done it from a release to current. Which, I mean, that's the same thing. It just doesn't have the fancy number at the end. Okay, so that's everything. That That's that's Slackware 15.0 announcement version 2.0. I think it's a lot better than the first one. I got very distracted in the first one about sort of what I had done. This time, I, I feel like I was a little bit more focused. So, so far... I have installed Slackware 15.0 from an optical disk and from a thumb drive, both from the same ISO file. And both were successful. So give it a try. Now let's dive in to the packages of Slackware. And this time we're going to pick it back up, I think, with Bomber. B O M B E R. There's a couple of games in today's list, actually. I thought for a moment maybe I should just. Oh, it's not Bomber, it's Blinken. I I thought for a moment that maybe I should just do KDE games or something. But, you know, I'll just, I'll never remember that I've done it. Or I will remember, but I'll miss a game or or something. I don't know. So I'm just going to, I'm going to stay the course. And the course is continue to go through the package list in alphabetical order. So that's what we're doing. I am going to launch Blinken. That's B-L-I-N-K-E-N. From its description file, from the .txt file on the in the package listing, it says that it is a, a memory enhancement game for KDE. When this game launches, you are greeted with uh, an interface of four quadrants. There's a, a top-left yellow, top-right red, bottom-left blue, bottom-right green. This is a familiar game to me. I've seen this. It's like a children's game in the U.S. that you very frequently see in... Cheap toy stores and things like that. I don't I don't remember what it was called. Something like maybe, I don't know, Memory, Memory 4, Memorize, I don't know. Um, anyway, I'm going to click Start. And now it tells me to choose a level, so I'll just choose Level 1 because I'm not actually very good at this game. Okay, so it has just blinked the green selection. And so I'm going to click Green. And now it's going to do Green something. I think it's Green Blue. Yes, that was Green Blue. And now it did Green, Blue, Yellow and so on. It does this until you mess up, pretty much. I'm actually doing a lot better right now than I've ever done before. The The problem for me is that uh, it's actually a little bit boring. Um, the, the lights aren't quite as pronounced as I think I would prefer. I think if I if I could go in and change the source code... Oh wait, I can. It's open source. So, yeah, you could look at this game and um, change things if you wanted. I mean, it's not... You'd have to com- recompile it and so on. So it isn't... It, it's you know, its not a like a Python game where you could just kind of go in and just hack on it without really sort of thinking about your, your build chain and stuff. But um, I think it could be a really good game. And this goes for... Well, honestly, for several of the KDE games. I think it could be a really great uh, code base to look at if you're just starting out with coding... Or if you're, you know, sort of leveling up with coding, or, uh, very significantly, if you're, if you've been coding, but you've only been using sort of the default widgets of a tool set, the, the, the games are, are really good to kind of get the feel and f- the, well, the literal code of what you need in order to design your own widgets for, uh, you know, within a window. So that's, um, quite useful. Uh, Blinken is a little bit, on the boring side, I think i mean i don't i don't it's not my style of game necessarily it might be very entertaining for some people though that might be a a fun challenge i mean it's a very valid challenge you know it's just not it just happens to not be a thing that I enjoy the um there's a game that coming up here called bovo which i I find a lot of fun so um blinken is just one of the many choices that you have, and you can try it out see if you like it. See if that sort of thing is exciting to you. I do love that it is both visual and auditory. I think that's a really, really strong point of it. I think I kind of wish that at the beginning it played each light with the sound, so that you, so that you could choose to just go off of auditory input rather than visual. And ultimately, the interface is in, is only visual, as far as I know. Maybe. Maybe that's not correct. I wonder if I could find that out really quick. Let's look at Blinkin' again. There is... Oh, these are high scores. I thought it was a configuration menu. It's not. Oh, but the question mark at the bottom is a rollover thing and gives you a bunch of new options if you roll over it. And it says Handbook, Settings, About, and About. Okay, so I'm going to go to Settings. It asks me to choose the sound... or Oh, to put the sounds on or off and to put the font Oh, to to do a stylized font or not. I'm going to turn the stylized font off. I'm going to keep the sound on. But yeah, I don't see any way to to just make it a... Oh, accessibility options. Here we go. One, two, three, four. Cool. Okay, so top left is one, top right is two, bottom left is three, bottom right is four. So that means that I should be able to... Of course, I don't know how to... How do you restart... Mm. All right, let me really quick let me look at this thing again. Um, oh yeah, it says it's a, re- a retro electronic memory game from the seventies to KDE. That's exactly the thing that I was thinking of. I still don't know the name of it, but yeah, it's good that they that they referenced it just because I wasn't really sure. Um, let's see. No, I don't see a way to. I don't know how to start the thing without. Oh, there we go. Oh, this is great. Oh, apparently not so great. Yeah, so you can you can play the game with control the c- control one two. Oh, that's what I that's where I went wrong. I went one three. I should have gone one, four, 3. Oh well. Anyway, you can you can play the game with control one, two control two control three and control four. Those are the those are the uh, the quadrants. You just have to remember which quad quadru- quadrant each one is. Oh, yeah, I keep messing it up. But um that's really cool. That's really neat. It would be nice if they'd mapped the quadrants to maybe the numpad or something so that it so that it makes sense. Well, it's funny because I want it to make sense visually, but the theory is that that this would be played would be played without the visibility. Anyway, that's cool. That's really neat. Um I think that's that could be a really cool just as an audio game, you know, because you don't see that many audio games really. You don't get that many audio games really. So that's kind of neat. Anyway, let's move on to the next one called Blue Devil. Do a var log packages on Blue Devil. This is the Bluetooth stack for KDE, and what a what a champion the maintainers of this stack must be, because really, I mean, Bluetooth is one of it's just it's a protocol that's been around since I don't know how long, something like 25 years or something. It was, I think, introduced in the late 80s or early 90s, and it's just, it's, no, it must be the late 90s, early 2000s. Let's look. Bluetooth invented. 1994. Okay, so early n- 90s. And it's just, for me, in in my opinion, it's just, it, it really seems like a pretty dismal Little protocol, and I think that the best way to mitigate the how 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 bad Bluetooth is, well, the best way to mitigate it would be, I think, for someone to come up with something better. And I don't know what that is, <laughs> so I'm not the person to come up with something better. Um, so the fact that it exists, you know, I mean, it's I guess it's better than not existing. I mean, I certainly do appreciate that my Bluetooth, um, my little Bluetooth headset thing gives me the ability to listen to podcasts while i'm you know doing things around the house or 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 out and outside while i'm like mowing the grass or something i can listen to podcasts and i don't have wires hanging all over me so i do appreciate that about bluetooth i just find that bluetooth is is very slow and it, it seems to be very clunky it, it doesn't it doesn't work reliably it 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 often it seems to like sort of just lose its connection randomly it just I don't know. I, I don't I don't like it. I do not enjoy using Bluetooth. I, I enjoy the what it provides me when it works, but I don't enjoy really the protocol. But Blue Devil is the thing that brings Bluetooth into KDE integration and is much appreciated. It is it is it's an important stack and it does, I guess, the best it can do with a, a really poorly a, a poor protocol. And again, I you know the protocol. I'm sure it's very difficult to make these things because I can't do it. I just don't. I don't enjoy it. But I do enjoy Blue Devil because it it makes it all possible. So there's a bunch of libraries. There's Qt5 library libbluetoothplugin.so. There are some desktop files. There, uh, where's the other libraries? I thought there were more libraries. Oh, there they are. Um yeah, so there's things like KCM underscore Blue Devil Adapters dot SO, KCM underscore Blue Devil Devices, Blue Devil Global, and so on. There are two executable um binary packages or or applications in this package as well. Called one is called Blue Devil Synd file and one is called Blue Devil Wizard. Now those are handy to have especially if you're not running KDE as your desktop if you're running fluxbox or something but you just happen to be using all the K apps which i sometimes do on on a, on on a device on a on a laptop i'll i'll think well why run the whole KDE stack i don't feel like i need that i'll just do fluxbox but i love KDE apps so i'll use those so those make it really simple to set up your you know to pair a bluetooth device with your computer you can do blue Blue Devil Dash Wizard. It's a very simple application. It's a one-window application with a big window or a big panel where it scans for devices that it can pair with. You select that device, and then you click next. It sends the device a request. The device sends something back. I think it's usually a pin number, and then you type in the pin or something like that, or you confirm the the pin, um, and and then. The the two devices are paired, and that's it. Similarly, once something is paired, you can do a Blue Devil send file wizard. Uh, it's Blue Devil dash send a file, and this shows all of the paired devices. You select the one that you want to send a file to, and then you click the little directory icon in the lower right corner to select the files you want to send, and then you click send files, and it sends the file over to the device. In theory, it is as simple as that. And that, those are just the almost demo level applications. You, you come up, up, you, you come upon Blue Devil integration elsewhere, though. So if you go to, for instance, System Settings, or if you just type in Bluetooth, you're likely to come across things that are using Blue Devil libraries. So the Bluetooth configuration screen in System Settings is, is pretty similar to, to the demo, um, application. It's a little bit different. But, you know, you can you can pair devices uh through the little plus sign and that literally brings up Bluetooth device wizard, which is which is exactly the thing that, that you get when you launch Blue Devil Dash Wizard. I don't know where the send file is. It's probably well let's see if I select this device and then click send file, I'll bet that brings up No, actually it doesn't. But anyway, um it's it's using all the Blue Devil um libraries. So That level of integration is nice. But wait, there's more. You can also go to, for instance, I'll just go to my home directory in Dolphin. I'll find any random file. Here's a little tiny file. Right-click, and in the context menu of Dolphin, there's a selection, Send via Bluetooth. And if I roll over that, it it brings up a a list of all the devices, all the one devices that I have paired to my computer uh, as as a destination for files. And I could click on that, and it would send that file to that device. And save it to that device to whatever default download location I had set. The The device would all, already have to be paired with your computer for it to show up. You don't get to just send files to whatever device you like. But that 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 is really nice, because you don't need an, an, an extra application just to send a file. If that's what you're doing, you can just right-click on it in Dolphin and send it to the thing. So smooth, so easy. It's just right there. That's the kind of integration that I'm talking about with KDE, and and it's an integration that you do not get in other desktops, much less in other operating systems. So really very cool. It's just such a pity about the Bluetooth thing. Well, let's go get a cup of coffee, and then we'll come back, and we'll continue talking about the the other B packages in the KDE software series. We'll take some listener feedback, I'll see you after the break. got coffee, and I'm gonna just keep going on the assumption that you also have coffee. So, Blue Devil was what we left off with. The next one is Bomber. B-O-M, no, B-O-M-B-E-R, And this... Uh, th- it took me a while to figure out how to play this game. This one seems to be a little bit off on the alignment for me, for the background. I'm not sure why. But uh, it says, Welcome to Bomber. Click to start a game. So I'll click. And now... I can't tell if I'm playing this. I I am okay. So you can click or you can press spacebar to drop a bomb from this plane, which you have no control over. It's just flying from left to right, left to right, left to right, and it it sort of um it's it you know it leaves one side of the screen and it pops up onto the other side of the screen. And I guess the, the goal of this game is to... You have to bomb... Your, your plane is getting lower and lower on the screen, and you are meant to decimate these structures at the bottom of the screen before your plane reaches the bottom of the screen. That's how you advance to the next, I guess, level. And it gets a little bit tricky once you've started... You know, at first it's quite easy because you're just, you're just... You just can just drop bombs, and you can't not hit something you'll always hit something because there's just so many things there but then after a while you start to um you, you, it starts to become more complex because there are fewer targets for you to hit so you actually have to time your your bombs and and it, there there is a lesson of sort of um you know the the delay that it takes for a bomb to leave the plane and the 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 time that it takes to reach the target and so you kind of you do sort of start to um optimize how you are dropping bombs and you try to get better at it. I'm actually doing all right this round, but the plane just, it keeps getting lower. I don't know why the pilot is doing that. I just reached level three. Uh, so so that 's what you do, and then and at some point the the buildings become variable heights as well, so now there are more optimal targets than others and there 's a little bit of an i guess an action economy because as you drop a bomb there 's a little bit of a delay before the next one becomes ready, and so you really only have like maybe on a good run, you have three bombs before you get to the other side of the screen. So, yeah, it's a pretty fun little game. Not at first, I don't think. I think when I first played it... I'm on level four now. Uh, when I first played it, I, it took me a while to figure out what I was even supposed to do. I'd never seen anything like this before. And and then and then it, it, the, the delay in the bomb dropping really kind of gets on my nerves, because it's just so frustrating you just think why aren't we dropping more bombs but if you start to kind of just recognize the elements the pieces that you have to play with then you start to see the strategy of what you're doing I mean you just have to prioritize the, oh I just crashed uh, you have to prioritize the, high, the you know, the higher buildings um, or else you crash into them eventually so that's Bomber. Again, I, I'll bet it's a great game to look at if you want to learn more about programming at all, but also just programming with custom widgets or programming games. I mean, it's a very basic, you know, side-scrolly type of game, but, I mean, it's it's a fun diversion, and and I, I think it's worth it's worth playing a couple of times at least, and it's probably worth looking at the source code. One more game, and then we're out of the B section, and then I'll switch over to some listener feedback. But this one is called Bovo, B O V O. It's a, a all of the games are 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 really nicely done with vector graphics. So you can expand the game as as high as you as large as you want. Full screen and it'll be just as sharp as as at a smaller resolution or window size rather. So that's kind of well it's, it's very nice. So Bovo is also uh it says in the about Bovo I think it said that, maybe not. Anyway, it's it's a five in a row game or it's sometimes called Connect 5 or um what was the other name? It was a Japanese game. There there's a, there are other names for this, but if you've ever played a game that has that that wants you to connect five elements together before your opponent does, then you've you've played this game. It's like a really really big game of tic-tac-toe or knots and crosses as um some people call it so i'm going to click new and uh it looks like the computer started for me so or started this game so i'm going to start somewhere and the computer started again or uh, has gone now uh, of course now th- there are problems because the computer has gone first and so and i haven't played dif- dif- defensively and so the computer just won so i guess this time i get to go first which is nice this game is this this computer is is quite aggressive like really aggressive Puts me on the defense no matter what. I don't know how to get it to not be. Ah, oh, it's still one. Wow. Computers are smart. Well, they're not smart, but they certainly know what their goal is. So, um, that is five in a row, or Bovo. And you can change the theme. That's kind of cool. Oh, Gomoku. G-O-M-O-K-U. Gomoku. G-Gomoku. That, that's the, the, the other game. And that, that make that gives you a very nice sort of bold, Deep red board with uh, white tokens and black tokens that compete. Uh, apparently, yeah. On um, what do you call them? On the the intersections of that's that's actually a little bit busy. This is a little bit busy in my view. That's the the tokens are a little bit large for that theme. I think there's a high contrast theme. There's a spacey theme. I really like the scribble theme though. That that was the default. For me, anyway, and it's just kind of a uh, handwriting, handwritten X's and O's on a, a nice white sort of background with a blue grid. So Bovo is a lot of fun, and you can actually play it, I guess, with two players. I've not actually tried that yet, but um, apparently you can. Where, where's, where, where does one configure that? I wonder, because it did say two players, but but I don't actually know where how to turn the computer off and. Let, yeah, that might, it might just be referring to the second player as, as the computer. Because I don't see, I don't see anything for a second player, a second human player. Okay, so there's, um, lots of different levels of difficulty as well. There's ridiculously easy, very easy, easy, medium, hard, very hard, extremely hard, impossible. It's, it seems to be default set sort of in the middle. So I've just done very easy. I'll bet I still lose. Oh no, I see. Okay. Wow, the computer just makes really silly choices on very easy or on ridiculously easy. Well, at least I won once though. Yeah, so that's a challenging game and, and really nice too. I mean, that's a, th- that would be an interesting one to look at the code for just to see the AI process. Cause that's, it's tough. I know it's not really AI, but you know, the, to to see how they implement that second player logic that would be interesting to see cuz that is it's legitimately a difficult thing to do we don't think about it that often but trying to get a computer to play at all uh, other than just randomly against a player for instance in chess or checkers or something like that you know kind of that grid setup such as such as bovo it 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 becomes this sort of huge brute force process of just analyzing every single possible move and processing it accordingly. And that's hard to code. So that would be really kind of interesting to see. Especially, and I, I am curious too, how do they implement those like di- seven different levels of difficulty? That seems, that seems exciting. H- how do you get it to, how do you dumb it down or how do you make it more aggressive? I don't know. I'd have to look at the code. It is open source. As I've always uh, already mentioned at the top of the, episode, Hacker Defo and Black Kernel were talking to me on Mastodon, helping me figure out what exactly is going on with the USB images of Slackware 15.0. I learned some new things and got clarity on other things, and I got a lot of really useful sort of back and forth from from that conversation. So I'm not going to read that, but just know that that was that that happened and that informed the first segment of this particular episode that you're listening to right now. I also got an email. This one is from W4jed. He says, I don't know exactly when Slackware came to the US, but Slackware 2.3 was on the July August 1995 Yggdrasil Five disk setup that I did my first install from, and yes, I still have the box set. Uh, he also he he makes a comment about well, where does where to begin? Okay, I'll just read the rest of his email. He says, "Yes, it's when you found out how flat, awful three and a half inch floppies are, and Windows refused to mark the bad sectors on them, so your only choice was to throw brand new floppies away." So this is Clatu again. Th- this is the this is a, a neat email, because it is a little bit of a snapshot of the past. First of all, how cool is it to have the box set of your very first install, your your very first Linux install? I think in a way, maybe, probably not, to be honest. Who am I kidding? I was going to say, maybe if I had understood what a thing Linux was going to become for me, I would have kept my first install disk. And as I've said before, my my very first, the technically the very first Linux install I did was of Mandriva, I think it was two thousand and seven or two thousand and eight disk, and I say that because Mandriva used to Mandriva was a combination of um, something and mandrake so mandriva was was this uh, sort of the second iteration of of mandrake Linux second iteration of that, if we consider for instance magia the third iteration, which i I, I do so mandriva um, they used to number their releases. I believe, for, you know, sort of like the year ahead. Which used to confuse, I think, a lot of people until you kind of think about it from the marketplace perspective, like the literal market. Because things on shelves, you don't... They won't carry those things if they're dated last year. I mean, they will. I'm I'm sure places sold Windows 95 f- well into 97 or whatever. But traditionally... Places do not like to keep things that are backdated on their shelves. So you, if you're releasing a thing, you usually want to date it forward so that it is good for that year. So it, it makes sense. But anyway, it's confusing if you think about what year did you do that in. I think it was the 2007 one, but from screenshots online, it also kind of looks like 2008, but maybe it just didn't change that much. Either It was the one with the M- Matisse... Uh, window Manager options on it anyway. So, and I don't know if that's the only one, but it did have that as a as an option. So that was the technical first one that I installed. And I, I you know, it, it's I got it out of the back of a book about Linux because I was researching the subject, and it came with a little CD in the back. And so I I put it onto a friend's computer just to see. Just I literally could not believe it was possible. I just thought this seems crazy. I am going to boot off of this CD and have an OS apparently. I don't think it'll work, but I guess I'll try it. And it literally felt like a scam. It just, it felt too good to be true. It felt like a fantasy. Because I used to wonder about what would it, how how would it be to have an OS that wasn't Mac or Windows? You know, I, I used to wonder about that as a as a person. And I just didn't, I had no concept of what that would, how that would be possible. I never thought about the fact that when you booted up a playstation or a nintendo or something that you were experiencing an operating system that never occurred to me that that was the same that's the same thing uh it just didn't that it was never computers were never quite presented to me without the paradigm of its mac versus windows and there was never any consideration that there were that that both of those were implementations of a way of running a computer and The note about the floppy disk problem is, again, just such a snapshot of its time. And and I think it kind of reinforces that and just what I've just said about not understanding what an operating system is. It just kind of reinforces that I was not, at that time, ready for Linux. So as much as I kind of, you know, there's there is a tinge of regret here and there, thinking, oh man, wouldn't it have been cool to have gotten into Linux sooner? I could have had so much more time with it and so much more reference and, and context and, and experience and, and knowledge. But as so many things, as with so many things in life, it, I think it just kind of happened for me, at least when it needed to happen. And I respect greatly the people for whom Linux was a possible reality for them back, back in ninety ninety five. That's just so cool. Now I do have, um, in my possession, I stole these from my father, um, he, he was getting into Linux around, around, around that same time. And I have two CDs here from, it looks like 1998 is one, 1999 is the other. One is a four disc set from a company called InfoMagic. And it has Red Hat 5.0 with kernel 2.0.32, SUSE 5.1, with kernel 2.0.33, slackware 3.4, with kernel 2.0.30, and what else, anything else, other stuff, like metro x, I don't even know what that is, xfree86, red hats power tools 5.0, with sources, kernel sources, from 2.0.33, and 2.1.79, so two. Two kernel sources on here. Linux archives from tsx 11.mit.edu and sunsite.unc.edu. GNU archive from prep.ai.mit.edu. Apache WWW for Linux version 1.2.5. Less TIFF for Linux 0.8. And a complete online docs and how to's installation guide and networking guide. That's the four-disc set from InfoMagic. There's another one I have here from Walnut Creek. And Walnut Creek is rather, at least in my world, famous for being, as far as I understand, the um, one of the original distributors, or the original distributor as I understand it. It could have been, maybe it's a different one. But um, Walnut Creek, as I understand it, is the original distributor of Slackware. So that's really cool. And this is a Red Hat 6.0 CD, and it's got... Um, It's got a little advertisement in the liner note section in the little pamphlet uh, for FreeBSD, a full 4.4BSD light-based 32-bit operating system from Berkeley, BSD Unix. Uh, FreeBSD toolkit, a robust collection of binary snapshots, packages, disk files, documentation, and distribution source. Six disk set. Wow, that's a big set. Um, And it's got a bunch of other stuff too, like... The complete FreeBSD reference. Slackware Linux, the official Slackware Linux. Internet's favorite. Full PC Unix, four disks. Linux Toolkit, g- a six disk set. Business Apps for Linux. Linux Games Plus Plus. X11R6.3. GNU Sources. Toolkit for Solaris. C Users Group Library. Source code 1 to 3 for Usenet source code from the experts. Perl. Tex. T E X, um, like LaTeX. Uh, that's a two-disc set, and Toolkit for Delphi. I've heard of Delphi vaguely, but I don't know what it is. Anyway, that's those are the, the archives that I have, and neither of them are actually things that I, uh, that I used at the time. They are things that someone I know used at the time, but I did not. I did install... I tried to install some of that um, on hardware once, and it went well up until the point that you needed a USB stack, At which point it fell over. But many of them, or all of them, worked quite well in a virtual machine. So that was a lot of fun for a a week or weekend. I also got an email from Herog. You may remember him from episode 397. I interviewed him about a a book podcast that he was working on. He says that he wasn't uh, familiar with Contact, and honestly had never opened Contact because I simply assumed it was just the. Application for Managing Contacts, and all the contacts I have I keep in my own memory. With that said, your latest episode, 444, really got me thinking. I don't, honestly, have a lot of RSS Atom feeds that I follow, and I would like to change that. I think I sort of got fed up with all the feeds being shortened versions of articles. It's a good point. Um, A lot of RSS feeds lately have kind of started to default to click more, you know, click here to read more. I, I don't actually mind that so much, I mean, I kind of do because when i'm when I'm looking at my r s s feed reader, one of the things about that is that I'm in my r s s feed reader and I don't necessarily want to have to navigate somewhere else It's just you know it kind of it makes the completeness of that r s s feed feel a a lot less complete, so that is kind of annoying, but in practice i don't I don't think I really notice that much. I think largely because of aggregator aggregator makes it pretty transparent and so I think for that reason it it doesn't bother me that much I treat RSS feeds well I guess like Linux install disks I generally treat them as very sort of ephemeral I go to my RSS feed reader I look to see if there are any interesting articles lately and if there are I read them and then I kind of forget about them and that's the extent of it it was by chance that I happened well, that Aggregator itself happens to have archived it keeps an archive of the feed, more or less whether I want it to or not. I mean, that's wrong actually. I, I can tell it to delete articles and it will it will forget those articles exist. So I could do that. In practice I do not. And so and so typically I end up accidentally having an archive of a bunch of stuff. But it is not something that I do Intentionally, uh, as I've already established, I'm I'm not very good at keeping track of historical artifacts. I'm really really bad at that, actually. If if I were better, I would have Linux install discs from when I first installed Linux, or or ones that were particularly important to me. Um, but I moved around a lot for a long time, so it just wasn't pragmatic for me to keep track of stuff. And and even I, I feel like I've I mean, I've been in New Zealand for something like eight or nine years now, so e- even now I, I, I don't tend to keep hold on to stuff if, it, if, if I can help it. It's just if it's not something that I use, I, I tend to try to pass it on. So RSS feeds, it does tend to collect stuff whether I intend for it to do that or not, unless I consciously you know remove things. But Herag, the, the question ultimately was, what do I follow? In our in in the RSS feed reader, and you know it, it's kind of an interesting question, but it, it's kind of also it, it's difficult to answer. I mean, it's well, it's it's easy to answer. It's it's difficult to determine whether an answer is useful because I I I follow well f- certainly the default three RSS entries that come with aggregator, which is kind of funny because you know if you're like me, and I think most people in this case, I think a lot of us share. This trait, the default thing in an application, that's the first thing you get rid of. Like you understand, okay, it's there because it's gotta, it's gotta be there to demonstrate that the application works or, or for branding purposes or, or whatever. So you get rid of all those things so you can put your own stuff into the application. But actually, for once, with Aggregator, I, I'm, I'm actually quite happy with the default, the, the demo settings. The, those are really, really nice, um, little things to follow. KDE.news, Planet KDE, and Planet KDE. PIM. The the latter one sounds very specific, but it, it actually is. Th- there's a lot of variety on all of those. You'll get news about KDE, and cute and uh, Plasma, and, PIM and specifically KDE PIM, and just all kinds of things. So it's not as specific as it sounds to, to say that it's Planet KDE PIM. just because a lot of the people posting in one place are also involved in other areas, so you do get a variety. So in terms of technical stuff, the other stuff that I add, first of all, I guess, would be the CVE database. Every time a, a, a vulnerability is added to the CVE, it gets posted to this RSS feed. Or I think there are a couple of different RSS feeds I just grabbed. I think this is kind of the big all-inclusive one. I think uh, it's just as much, you know, as as many open reports as there are in the CVE That's what I want to see, and and really, it's it's one of those things where I just scan through the headlines, or the I, I I don't know if it's called the headline, but whatever the you know the entry when you see it on the RSS in the in the list, I scan through that list just to see if there's something that I recognize or something that that's kind of confusing or or interesting, and then when you click on an article, you you do have to click to get through to the the actual like listing so you're really i really just use it sort of yeah as an index essentially and and that works out fine i don't think i would want to uh, leisurely read through all of these at any point but but it is good to just kind of keep keep an eye on what's going on i guess that's just kind of how i do it not very precise but it's just my methodology so that's the CVE thing uh if you're really really into emacs you probably already know sasha chua if you're only really into emacs just one really not two reallys then you might not know her and if you don't and you are into emacs you you should su- subscribe to sasha chua she's um she she was she, well she's just a person on the internet really who who happened to stumble on emacs at one point and got really really into it that's that's from what i recall of sort of when i first discovered her that was her story and and now she she writes about emacs and she writes about how she uses Emacs in her everyday life, and she manages or, or uh, coordinates a Emacs conference. So it's, it's a great place to just kind of get... it It's a, a nice central location for a lot of Emacs activity. That's Sasha Chua. Again, I'll, I'll put all these links in the show notes, I guess. And then finally, there's... Or maybe not finally, but also... Um, well, here's one. Here's GB Hackers. I don't even know what that stands for, Great Britain Hackers. GB Hackers um is a thing that I found online when I was just I don't know how I found it, gbhackers.com, but they had some good articles. And uh it's worth it's worth a subscription. I mean, it's free to subscribe. And those articles actually come into Oh no, they don't. Look at that. See how transparent it is? Uh, like in my head, all of these articles were actually here, but but actually what what's happening is that i i click on go to the complete story and then it pops up in aggregator so you in you know it's it's hard sometimes to to realize that you're not still in aggregator that you're you're actually i mean you you realize it but it's in my memory you know i don't think of it as well i didn't go to a browser but obviously a browser came to me in an aggregator tab it's nice. It's quite nice. So, anyway, that was GB Hackers. And then there's Julia Evans, who does a really, really good job, uh, JVNS.ca. Uh, she does a really, really good job of. Explaining some pretty advanced technical technical topics through a lot of times through little web comics. It's a lot of fun, uh, but she also re- she, she also writes about a, a bunch of other stuff and um, about technology and, and Linux and and zines and just a really diverse kind of creative take on on technology, but not with a focus on creativity. It's just a creative take on technology. It's it's pretty neat. And then there are some uh tabletop gaming stuff that I follow, but I'm not going to go over that here in the technology show. So, I will post the links to those in in the show notes. If you are looking for RSS feeds, I'm I'm not guaranteeing that they will satisfy your technical curiosity or or provide you with anything uh, other than l- links to content on the internet, which I know that you can find probably on your own as well. But since Herag asked I have answered. But I think now we're out of time. This is the end of the show. We've reached it. Come back for more next time. I'll talk to you then. A feeling good about myself why then most everybody else looks pretty good too